from Birmingham, Alabama. You're listening to the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress. I'm your host, Gary Furr, and I'm so glad to have you with me today. Whether you're sitting in your favorite chair or riding along in the car, I'm glad we're going to get to spend this time together. Glad to be with you. I just got back from a great weekend. Brent Warren and I went up to Hendersonville, North Carolina, and we were at a place called The Buzz on Friday night doing a John Prine tribute. Had a great time. It's a wonderful venue that's a nightclub, but it's, you know, it's non-alcoholic. It's for people in recovery and everybody, really, but it's a safe space for people who have uh, left addiction, and I recommend it to you. It's a great place if you get up around Hendersonville. They have some great musicians in and out of there. And we just had a wonderful time singing John Prine songs and some of our own stuff. And um, so I'm appreciative of the folks there. They, they are doing good work, and I hope you'll get to know the buzz in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Today I want to talk about lessons in empathy. We were talking to our nine-year-old granddaughter after school recently when she had run for class student council representative. We had a little conversation about winning and losing and how both of those things happen in life. You never win everything. And we reminded her that losing sometimes gave us some of the greatest learning that life had to offer. And she said, uh, that's right. Papa, because it can teach you how to have empathy for other people. I was most impressed because I didn't even know what empathy was at her age. But I have to say that all three of my daughters and their girls are taught about kindness and compassion to other people, and I'm very glad about that. Now, we moved a lot in my growing up years due to my dad's job, and I want to tell you about a lesson I got in empathy. Now, my brother Greg and I agree that the year we lived in a certain town in Ohio, Delaware, was the worst for both of us. We only lived there less than a year, and we went to a dark old elementary school building now torn down. When I watched the Shawshank Redemption, I thought it might have been filmed there. And when I was in fourth grade, uh, it was a forgettable difficult place. Narrow halls, and you know, when you're in a bad space, there's more yelling, and there was some bullying and different things. And so, you know, you'd go out at playground uh, time, and you were surrounded by chain link fence and doing everything on asphalt. You get it. But there's an image that haunts me from that year. It was a kid named Charlie. He was a poor kid who was new at our school, he always wore the same threadbare corduroy coat to school in the harsh winters of Ohio. He was not a very attractive person, although at nine years old, even your parents are struggling to find things to feel good about. He was lonely, and he was alone. And the class sort of fixed on him, as children sometimes do, sniffing a victim when they saw one. They picked on him and loathed him as the outsider. 
And pretty soon people started writing SOC on their hands. And I said, what does that mean? They said, safety on Charlie. Otherwise, if he touches you, you've got cooties. I didn't know what cooties were, but they sounded terrible. So I wrote SOC on my hand, too. I was from the South. I just moved to the class. I'd already been laughed at for my accent. So I was out on the margin just above Charlie. I could be knee-deep in cooties of my own at any minute if the right kids in the class said so. So I ran from Charlie. I didn't make fun of him, but on the playground we played tag, and Charlie was always it, it seemed. People ran away from him like he was Simon the Leper. Charlie seemed to be a good sport about it. He always laughed while he chased us around. But nobody ever seemed to be caught. But there was that day that he almost caught me, and he was laughing like a maniac. But when he got close enough, I could see big tears rolling down his cheeks while he laughed. It scared me a little bit, but it did more than that. It cut me very deep inside. I could see how alone he was, and he wasn't laughing at all. The tears were telling the truth. Charlie and I were out on the fringe of that little fourth grade world, one again, but he was further out than me. Fast forward many years, I got the phone call in the hallway of the pastor's home in Bruceville, Texas, during the Women's Missionary Union tea that was held at the Parsonage in rural Texas. Our town was small, relatively poor, and filled with a lot of troubled and broken families and people. It was a memorable meeting, first because we had a young woman named Karen in our church, who I later would realize had something called Asperger's. She had two master's degrees, but no social ability at all. She couldn't read cues, and she constantly would get herself rejected when she talked. And she nearly broke up the meeting because she started telling these ladies who were sitting around eating their cookies and drinking tea with their teacups on their knees about sitting on the toilet earlier that day and having a rat run through the room and looking at her. And she said, and I just said, how do you do? The ladies all were kind of choking. But about that time, the phone rang and it was a young girl. She had picked my name out of the phone book. Well, can you tell me your name? No, I I just need to talk to somebody. I didn't know who she was. She didn't tell me. She was 16, I guess. She said, I've been thinking about killing myself. And in a moment of last desperation, she had picked out a random preacher's house from the phone book, which we had back in those days, and called. As ladies went on with their meeting, there was nowhere to talk because back then, as I tell my children, phones were hooked to the wall with a cord. So you just had to go as far as it would go. And so I stretched it down the hallway and the hallway bathroom was the only place I could go. And so I sat down on the only seat available and I talked to her for nearly an hour. Why are you so unhappy? And she began to tell me the stories. She was despairing of life. We began to have a little connection. As we kept talking for a long, long time, and the chattering still going on outside, I told her it would make me very sad if I found out that she had ended her life. I don't want you to do it. I care about you even though we haven't even met. And as she started to get off the line, I said, Would you do something for me and wait till tomorrow? 
to call me back and tell me how you're doing before you do anything. She reluctantly agreed. When she called me back the next day, suddenly her disposition was sunnier. She said, I feel better, and she thanked me. I still, to this day, don't know who that young woman was. I don't know if she eventually ended her life or something terrible happened, or if she turned it around and went on out to have a normal life. But in that one moment, everything turned on a simple conversation between two people who never met, one who picked out a preacher's house in the phone book, and the other the preacher sitting on the little beige toilet in the pastorium. If this had been a Broadway musical, of course, we would have had a conflict, sung a song of resolution, and ended the story arm in arm, but it doesn't always happen that way. People write SOC and the Charlies of the world chase you around and sometimes they'd never catch anybody. You know, I think back to old Charlie and I think if I just slowed down a little, let him catch me and we could have laughed and I could have said, Charlie, you're all right, buddy. Let's walk over there and play to heck with this stupid game. They're mean to me too. Or I would have invited him to my little church or more if I were more mature than nine years old. Uh, I would have had him over to the house or something like that, but I, I was just nine. We could have been a countercultural community of radicals, he and I, right there on the playground of Boardman Elementary School in Delaware, Ohio, Mrs. Keller's fourth grade class. That's what Jesus would have done, but I hadn't even gone forward in church to tell people that I believed in Jesus yet. So it took me a lot of years but I keep looking for Charlies wherever I find them. I keep trying to slow down, maybe let them catch me once in a while and be part of my circle of fellowship. They're not even always poor and down and out. There is something God put in all of us that longs to belong, to be home, to know that some group of people is not quite the same unless we're there with them, and that's community. One of the things that makes it possible is empathy. Now, empathy combined with intuitive insight is the core of most of those people we call prophetic or prophets in the history of humanity. There are people who see a little deeper and further and understand and figure out and analyze where all the suffering and unfairness originates and the deep discrepancy between what's being done and what we should be doing. And it moves them to speak and act, usually before the rest of us get it. And the same can even go for simple acts of kindness to people who are hurting. Empathy moves us because we have some understanding of how another person might feel. And we want to help them with it, and in whatever way we can. These times we live in uh, outwardly seem to be a complete disconnect. There's so much, at least on our media, anger and vitriol and blaming and outrage. But then you come down here on earth with the rest of us and you see that beside those ex terrible things are extravagant acts of compassion and daily kindness. At first glance, I don't know what to make of it, but then I think there are two things that make the difference. First is how present we are to where we are in the real world and life around us. 
Virtual reality, so-called, just artificially links us in a torrent of experiences that may or may not have any bearing on the life that we're actually living right now. We might be angry about something going on in Myanmar or some perceived enemies around us that's scripted for us by some political hack and it distracts us from the truth of what really needs to be done. If you're really present, you see different things. Second, and this is related, we're in too great a hurry in our pace of life. Our technology has done this and we've let it. There was this very famous experiment done at a divinity school many years ago, Princeton, uh, Princeton University, and the year was 1970. A study was conducted to examine the impact of hearing Bible stories on what people actually do. The researchers asked this group of seminary students, divided in two, some to hear a little talk in one building and walk to another building and retell it, and some to hear a Bible story. And the point was to test what they remembered and present to the people in the other building what it was they could remember. But the researchers gave half the group a talk on vocational opportunities and the other half the story of the Good Samaritan, where a man is beaten and robbed and left for dead. And the story is Jesus tells us that we ought to be the neighbor who helps. So the students went through this alley to this other building to tell what they could remember of the stories they'd been told. Now, unknown to the students, there was a man dressed as a bum slumped in an alley doorway, head down and eyes closed. He wore tattered rags and coughed and moaned for help as each student passed by. The researchers hoped to show that Bible stories had an impact on whether people would stop and give assistance to the man. Well, they were disappointed in the results. Not only did it not make any difference which story they heard as to whether they stopped and helped the man, on some occasions, some of the seminary students that heard the Samaritan talk actually stepped over the man as they hurried past. As they dug a little deeper, the predictor was really how much time they were given to go from one place to the other. If they had plenty of time, they tended to stop and help. If they were in a hurry, they walked right past. An ancient monk said, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. To slow down is to be run over these days, but within that we can and must find the ways to resist the bombardment of anxiety, of constant stimulus and distractions. To not hurry means to at least be able to carve out a way to focus, pay attention and hear deeper than all the things that are ramping up all the chicken littles around us see what's really here instead of the filters and distortions in our minds and our habits. Even if you don't have the luxury of slowing down much, you can at least learn in your own mind to see as clearly as you can with a moment of prayer or meditation or art or nature or conversation, training yourself every day to pay better attention. Resist being so worried about what your friends think of you or what the competitive social group you're trying to be a part of thinks you ought to do, or how all the people that 
you don't belong to and want to think you ought to react and respond? What's the right thing to do? What's the thing God wants you to do? What's the thing Jesus would do? If you can learn how to do that, you'll have some space to begin to notice the more important things that cannot and should not be missed. And up at the top of that list, empathy and compassion. It's important for us to be sure we teach our children empathy and compassion. And it might not be a bad idea right now for we adults to go back and take a refresher course. See you next time. I'm Gary Furr, and this is the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress. Thanks for joining me today. You can find my music at G-A-F-U-R-R, gafur.com. And you can go to my blog site for lots of other information and writings at GaryFur.me, G-A-R-Y-F-U-R-R.me. Once again, thank you so much. Join me next time on the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress.